Our text today is going to be out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and turn there, I'll give a few introductory comments. So, yes and no are the most basic words, perhaps, in the English language, and in every language has words and concept of yes and no. Um, of course, it's so basic, there's a universal nonverbal, right? The nod for a yes and the shake of the head for a no. But they're very powerful concepts, very important and basic. Uh, and I think of no, of course, being negative, and as I thought about this, my example would be when I was a young man, which was just a couple of years ago, it seems, but um, and I was young in Christ, uh, and I was young in years, and had, I think, one child at the time, just starting our family. In the church we were in at the time, there was a, a gentleman who was older than me, and I was very impressed with his family. And so I asked him if he had any advice for someone young like me, and he had been he was a Bible college graduate, he was a deacon in our church, and you might expect that he had some sort of lofty advice for me, and actually all he told me was, just make sure you teach your children what no means. That was it. Very true, right? And yes, on the other hand, is very positive, and I think of this illustrated, uh, I had a college classmate when I was in college who worked at the Radisson Hotel, and their uh, ethic uh, that they taught their employees uh, how to work with the customers was, yes, we can. That was what they were to bring. Uh, so whenever they had a request, the attitude was to be, yes, we can. We can do this. Now, we have words for yes and no because we are made in God's image and likeness. God is the real author of yes and no. Because we, for example, in the Garden of Eden, we read in Genesis 2, in verses 16 and 17, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So we see there is a yes there, isn't there, in verse 16. You may surely eat. And there is a no in verse 17. You shall not eat. And we know that first Eve and then Adam said yes, where God had said no. Again, very simple concept, but what dreadful consequences, which we all still deal with. So throughout the Bible, we encounter God's yeses and noes. He commands, yes. He forbids, no. And then significantly, he makes promises, which might be characterized as yeses, but for later. God never lacks resolve with his yeses and noes. For as we say in English, God says what he means, and he means what he says. There is no vacillation with God. God's yeses and noes also never lack follow-through, since, of course, he is God, and he is sovereign. He controls all circumstances and brings to pass whatever he says. This is especially noteworthy in his ability to make good on his promises, such as in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, when he makes the first promise of a redeemer. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. But yeses and noes from human beings are a different matter. Sometimes we lack resolve. We say we will do something, but are unwilling to follow through. I will give you a purely theoretical example. Let's say there's a wife, and she asks her husband to do something. It could be simple, like pick up the groceries on the way home from work, or mow the lawn, or take her to dinner on her birthday. And he commits and says, yes, he will do that. And then he forgets. 
and doesn't follow through. Like I said, purely theoretical example. I'm sure no one here is familiar with anything like that ever happening. Uh, but sometimes we also lack control. We say we will do something but are unable to be follow through because the circumstances change that we can't control. Emergencies interfere with things. I can remember disappointing my wife once on a Mother's Day because there was an emergency with someone that we cared very much about. We ended up in the hospital and I needed to be there. And these realities that we are not in control and sometimes we lack resolve and so we can't always follow through on things can cause all kinds of problems in human relationships. Well, the church at Corinth and the Apostle Paul had a misunderstanding about yeses and nos. Um, and our passage, as I said today, is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you want to look to verse 12, I will read there, verses 12 through 24. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I am sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me, it was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Now the Apostle Paul in the Corinthian church had a rich history, but also had what could be characterized as a complicated relationship. Just very briefly, some background for us to recall. Paul had founded the church at Corinth through evangelization, as described in Acts chapter 18. Now, Corinth was a port city, and the immorality and greed that usually goes with such a place uh, was rampant in the city, and unfortunately, the church was not immune from its effects in its midst as well. Further, the Corinthians were Greeks, and they were quite proud of their pagan intellectual heritage. I don't think I need to tell you that sin and pride are an ugly combination. And the epistle known as 1 Corinthians was written by Paul to address many of the issues that these created in the church. And there, were, there was other correspondence between Paul and the Corinthians. And then he writes 2 Corinthians. And incredibly, the Corinthians still had general doubts about Paul's sincerity and transparency. Excuse me. 
which he addresses beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. So again, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. The apostle declares plainly that he has a clear conscience before God of his conduct. Was he perfect? No. But he kept his integrity in dealing with the Corinthians. He was honest about what Christ expected and was plain with the churches. And he loved them. His converts and church plants were his joy, and his concern for them was great. We see this so clearly later in this epistle. In chapter 11, uh, in verses 24 through 27, he details many of the trials that he had as he underwent his missionary work, including in places such as Corinth. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten by rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And yet, he's not done, for he says then in verse 28, and apart from other things, all these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul's heart was those who he brought to the Lord. So much so that he desired to be with them in person whenever possible. Now near the end of his previous correspondence, 1 Corinthians, to the church, he reports that he intends to visit them again and for a lengthy stay. He writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 5 through 7, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And his intent to visit is reiterated in our passage today from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In verses 15 and 16. Because I am sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. And to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Well, piecing together from the New Testament literature the exact proceedings and timeline of the Apostle Paul between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is a bit complicated, which I guess kind of fits because his relationship with the church was complicated, as I said. But and it's really unnecessary for our purposes today to do a deep dive into the details, but suffice to say this, which is the point. Paul was not able to visit the Corinthian church when and how he had hoped and when he had told them that he planned to do. So there was disappointment in Corinth. And then the accusations start to fly from the church. Paul was a vacillator. He couldn't be trusted. He said yes, but he meant no. In verse 17, he probably repeats their accusations back to them. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? 
ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Now, if someone accused you of such things, how would you respond of, of being a vacillator, of saying yes but meaning no? Uh, would you defend yourself? If so, how? And more importantly, why? It's so easy to get defensive and attempt to justify ourselves. I know that from personal experience. But Paul will make a defense, but it is not about him. He does not make excuses. He will give a legitimate reason in due time, but he doesn't immediately try to justify himself at all. Rather, he points to God's faithfulness. In verse 18, we read, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. So is God faithful? Well, yes. Likewise, Paul's intentions can be trusted, for he is God's servant, his messenger. Paul said, yes, I will come visit you. And he meant, yes, I will come visit you. How did the Corinthian Christians know that God is faithful? Well, the proof of God's faithfulness is Jesus Christ. And this was whom Paul, along with Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy, preached to the Corinthians in the gospel, as we read in verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Paul had preached the gospel to them, and they had believed. Was that message trustworthy? Well, surely it was. The Christians believed it was. And how so? Well, here's an important point about Paul and his companions. In 1 Thessalonians which is also known as an epistle of Paul, of course. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 states that it is from these same three men, Paul and Silvanus or Silas, and Timothy. And of course, Paul and Silas had founded that church in Thessalonica, evangelizing as described in Acts 17. And Timothy had ministered in Thessalonica as well, later being sent there by Paul. And this is what we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. The gospel, which is a message, a word, is preached with power and conviction in the Holy Spirit by faithful men. And the credibility of the message is inextricably tied to the credibility of the messengers. That's sobering. The words that we say about Jesus to others matter a great deal. But those to whom we speak aren't just listening, they're also watching. There's an adage that's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which goes like this. Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Now to be clear, that is not what I am saying, and that is not in any way what the Apostle Paul is suggesting. Gospel means good story, good news. By definition, it is verbal. Uh, meaning that words are always necessary. The point is simply that if we believe and trust the message, we do so because on some meaningful level, we believe and trust the messenger, our messengers. It really can't be any other way. Uh, I wasn't saved till I was 25 years old. Do you think I'd, growing up in America and even kind of some exposure to churches, do you think I'd never heard the gospel before then? Well, no, I had but I had never heard it from someone that I really deeply respected. I respected their character and their intellect. And I'm sure that many of us 
can experience the same thing, that we, uh, the gospel finally connects with us when it, connects, when it comes to us from a person who we respect and who we really desire to listen to and believe, that they have credibility. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to be perfect, hardly, but we do need to be genuine, right? We need to have integrity. People can sniff out hypocrisy from a mile away. And none of this is to suggest it's our fault when someone rejects the gospel, when they say no to Christ, nor is it to our credit, of course, when someone repents and believes and says yes to Christ. Only God gives the new birth. Repentance is granted and faith is a gift, as the scripture teaches. The gospel message is not ultimately about the messengers. On the contrary, it's not about them at all. It's about him, capital H, him, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But people must respect the messenger to respond to the message. We all do well to remember that. Moving on again, looking at verse 19 and tying it together with verse 20. Here in our passage, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory of God. The good news about Jesus is that he is God's yes. That is, God has fulfilled his promises in and through him. Well, which promises, we ask? All of them, Paul says. Now, some have attempted to count the number of promises made in the Bible by God, and they number in the thousands, the precise number depending on the source. So I'm not sure how much time we have here this morning. And in fact, I was told by Mike that the limit was basically 45 minutes and um, that there's actually some sort of trapdoor down here. That if I go past that, uh, there's a beanbag chair in the church library where you end up. I don't know if that's happened to anybody, but it won't be happening to me this morning. Um, but let's consider, though, a few highlights to make sure we understand and illustrate the point. Noah. Now, the flood came as judgment on the human heart, we are told in Genesis 6. Noah and his family are spared, but then we find in Genesis 8 that the wickedness of the human heart is not ready, remedied by the flood. The same problem remains. Nonetheless, God proclaims to Noah in Genesis 9-11. He says, I established my covenant with you, but never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God promises to withhold righteous judgment and says yes to grace and mercy. Or consider Abraham. Of course, the Tower of Babel is in Genesis 11, and God scatters humanity in judgment of their idolatry. It looks pretty bleak. But then in Genesis 12, God calls Abram, as he is still known, and promises him in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through Abraham, God says yes to blessing the nations. Or consider David. Through much war and trial, God establishes David as king over his people Israel. But David is just a man, and he will die like all those who have gone before him. Nonetheless, God promises him in 2 Samuel 7. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God promises to provide David an heir to his throne and says yes to an eternal kingdom. Or consider the promises of the new covenant in the prophets. God's chosen people, Israel, was unfaithful to God and disobedient to his covenant with them. And God promises to punish them, and he does punish them and judge them. You know, I'd said earlier that uh, promises are like a yes, but for later, and sometimes they're like a no for later, however. But through the prophets, God declares that he will make a new covenant with his people. There are numerous prophecies of this. Most, the most prominent are in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Sins will be forgiven, hearts will be renewed, and God's people will fully belong to him, and he to them. Let's take one example. In Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, we read this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God promises to redeem a people and says yes to being their God. So keep all this in mind and more as we again read verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All God's promises to give grace and mercy to those under righteous judgment, to bless all the nations, to establish an eternal kingdom, to redeem a people and to be their God and many more are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the amen, the expression of affirmation, the I believe that all God's promises are true. And that gospel, that good news, this is good news, is it not? Preached by Paul and his missionary partners, declared that Jesus Christ was God's yes to his promises to Noah, to Abraham, to David, through as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and again more than can be mentioned. Through the ministry of Paul and Silas and Timothy, Proclaiming the gospel in which the Corinthians had believed, God was glorified. And we do well to take a moment and to reflect. Do we all believe this good news? Has everyone here said no to God's no of human self-will and self-effort and self-self-self? Have we said yes to God's yes in Christ, where his promises are fulfilled, commanding us to repent, that is to turn from sin and to self toward God, and then to embrace Jesus Christ as the yes of all God's promises. Believing Christ alone is our only hope for grace, mercy, blessing, eternal life, forgiveness, and renewal. And to be counted among God's people. See, God had said yes to the Corinthians in Christ. And they said yes to God by believing on Christ. This was as true for Paul, Silas, and Timothy as it was for the Corinthian Christians. They were all united by God's great yes in Christ, as are we, if we have repented and believe. And if we have not, may this very day be the day. Moving on to verse 21 and 22, together, considering them together. The apostle writes, he says, It is 
God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So see, to doubt Paul's sincerity, to call his yes, yes, a no, no, to go back to verse 17, was to doubt not just Paul, but the God who had appointed him and anointed him to proclaim the yes of the gospel. It was also to doubt the God who had established Paul in the church at Corinth in Christ, and to doubt that they all, missionaries and church alike, have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's just too many doubts. That's not belief. Instead, Paul says they must all give God glory with an amen, and I believe. See, Paul had good reason to delay his visit to Corinth, as he says here in verses 23 and 24. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. And he elaborates later in chapter 2, which we won't read, but he says that this visit would have, if he had come earlier, it would have brought, he would have brought sorrow to them by way of rebuke for tolerating sin and knew it was best to wait and to come to them when he could come in joy. But the real issue is that they did not trust his intentions. And that indicated a lack of understanding and faith in God's yes in Jesus as it was lived out in Paul's life. And in all this, there is an important yes and no for us. Of course, there is the yes and no if we have said yes to the gospel, if we have said yes to God's yes in Christ, or if we continue to say no. But even after we come to Christ, there is a yes and a no for us. You see, brothers and sisters, if we doubt each other's sincerity and intentions, we frustrate the work of God in our own lives and in the lives of our brethren in the church. We effectively say no where God in Christ has already said yes. For if we doubt each other's hearts, we are really doubting God's work in those hearts, which have been sealed by the Holy Spirit upon believing in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, our confidence is not in each other, per se, but in Christ who lives in us. I read uh, an account about a young man. He was the morning of his wedding. And I think this is a true story. I read it in a book, not on the Internet, so that gives me a little more confidence. And, um, but he's there at the church waiting to get married. He's a Christian man, young man. And his father-in-law, also a Christian, of course, um, he encounters him, and so he decides to take this opportunity to thank his soon-to-be father-in-law. And he tells him, he says, uh, I just want to thank you, sir, for trusting me with your daughter. And the old man says, I don't trust you. I trust God. Perhaps a little harsh, but the point should be taken, right? Ultimately, our confidence is not per se in each other, but in God's work within us. And we can have every confidence in the God who is at work in us. Now, this does not preclude wisdom, discernment, and accountability, the need for all of those things, even to the point of church discipline, as God's people live out their yes to God's yes in Christ. And the church at Corinth was no stranger to all that, after all. In 1 Corinthians, Paul had instructed the church to discipline a man among them who was committing sexual immorality of the type even the pagans considered out of bounds. But what's noteworthy is that even while saying no to this man's sin, the purpose was that Christ's yes might stand. 
For we read in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Just as it is for parents with their children, um, again, recall my friend Emil's advice to me to make sure that I teach my children what no means. Saying no at times is part of the overall process of saying yes. Because saying yes to the gospel means saying yes to love. The love that the apostle expresses in 1 Corinthians 13's classic passage on love. Just to take a few verses there. Verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So let us say no to the Corinthians' attitude toward Paul's delayed visit as we live and serve among the brethren in the church of God. The no that is rooted in an immature self-will that refuses to trust God's presence and work in each other. Rather, let us say yes to believing the best in each other in God's family. For that honors the God who has said yes in the gospel in Jesus Christ to each of us who have come to him. All those who have repented said no to the world and believed and said yes to him. And so we too, like the Radisson employees who I mentioned earlier, who were taught the yes we can attitude of the heart toward their customers, so in the church of Christ we must have a yes we can attitude of the heart toward our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Yes, we can believe in one another. Yes, we can believe one another. Yes, we can trust others' intentions are good. Yes, we can give one another the benefit of the doubt. Yes, we can believe all things including the best about one another. Doing this, so, is living out our yes to God's yes in Christ and gives God the glory he so richly deserves. Amen. Think of verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, our hearts are overwhelmed with gratitude as we reflect upon your yes to us in Christ, that all your promises all the promises that are so dear to us that we hold and cling to, Lord, for all our lives and all our soul, Lord, are all fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that in our hearts, Lord, that that love of Christ would abound uh, toward the brethren, Lord, that in the church of God we would say yes to each other just as you have said yes to us in Christ. We would love and support each other and build each other up, encourage each other, one another daily, uh, that Christ indeed would receive the glory and the amen in our lives. In his precious name we pray, amen.